Thank you, Josiah, for reading that. We, uh, our order of worship, of course, if you're visiting with us, is a little different than you may be accustomed to in a traditional church setting on a Sunday morning, but we've moved our singing congregational to the end of our time uh, to accommodate this supremely weird season that we're in. That minimizes circulation in this recirculated space. And then shortly after we sing, we will take communion and we will then be dismissed, and I'll ask you to congregate outside. That's kind of the flow. I know church family, you've heard that multiple times, but for our guests this morning, uh, that borders on Revelation, so we're great to have you with us. My yard has been overtaken with Bermuda grass. Uh, It's depressing looking. Um, It's not completely overtaken, but uh, any Bermuda grass for me is more than I want, and I have much more than any. Can anybody relate? Nobody cares, okay. So um, Bermuda grass, you may know, is that long, wiry grass. Now, it almost sounds like another gospel, but when I was researching it, they say you should plant this at some places. I can't imagine ever doing that. In California, um, I don't know. That's just another reason not to live there. But Bermuda grass is that long, wiry grass. uh, When I say long, I mean it snakes. It's got those little offshoots of grass that comes off of it. If you treat it, like the weed that it is in a fescue lawn like mine, then you have to suppress it. Rather, you have to pay for materials or somebody to suppress it, which doesn't kill it, because if you kill it, then you kill your grass. So you have to suppress it, and then you have to get in and pull a good bit of it out by hand. When you start pulling at it, that's when you recognize you think you're pulling this one thing. It's connected here and here. In fact, one root of Bermuda can grow up to six feet deep. Uh, Most of it lives in the highest layer, but I've discovered in North Carolina we have deep Bermuda connections, pun intended. When when you go to start preaching the book of Exodus, you find out that (laughs) there's more to it than just the top layer in verse 1. You actually find out it goes much deeper and snakes all the way back through the earliest parts of Genesis, which we're going to see today. So I don't know if my title is clever or shows an abject lack of cleverness, but here it is, the Genesis of Exodus this morning. Why Exodus? I was asked recently by a friend, he said, so tell me, how did you pick that book of the Bible? Were you looking at what's going on and because of the plight of society, you're thinking, man, you know what would be a great book to preach through? Exodus, because it speaks to this and it speaks to that and it speaks to this. And I said, you know, for what it's worth, since you asked, you you need to know that I I don't let, I don't think culture is a good expositor. Um... I do believe that expository preaching from God's word will speak to culture. I think if you stay knit into the book, uh, that the book lives and it will speak in a timely way. God in his sovereign kindness will bring a sure word in season if we commit to preach the word of God. But I think cultural is a terrible expositor. I think that uh, we see that in pulpits across our nation that are vying and, and pulling out all the stops to be culturally relevant. The problem is when you open your Bible, it's possible, it's possible, it's possible to become so culturally relevant that you become biblically irrelevant. You are speaking to the needs of society with a, a Christianized, sanitized, solution that's not necessarily matching the biblical 
narrative. So I said, no, I had endeavored to preach through. I've done the math. It looks like it's going to take me 30 to 35 years to preach through the whole Bible. Now, Pastor D said that I've only got to be here one more year than he does. So by your grace and mercy, if you'll allow me four more after that, we'll work through it together. But I'm not preaching every single word of every single verse. You're going to have to do some reading on your own, and you'll get some homework through Exodus as well. Just like it isn't wise to take a statement out of context, we see that happen all the time in the news. We live in this soundbite, condensed character, social media experience, and we live in a church age that really wants a relevant word in season. Just give me the application. Let me get out of here. I, just tell me what to do, pastor. Give me a new law to follow instead of a Lord to love and a word to soak in. It's not wise to take verses out of context. You've seen it plastered at your gym. I can do all things through Christ on leg day. That's not what that means. We would do well not to take chapters and even, can I say, books of the Bible out of their place too. It's been suggested that Exodus is not meant to be read in isolation from the surrounding Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, of course, the first five books of the Bible. Rather, it describes one stage of Israel's journey. Think with me, think with me. I, I, I'm gonna have to give you some information this morning, but our goal this morning is not information. It's not even really inspiration. It's transformation. That's our goal when we come to the text anytime. But, but let me give a little bit of information. If you took that movement of Israel in five movements, here's what you'd find. You'd find the journey of a people of God. You'd find God's promise to the patriarchs, the exodus, God's self-revelation and covenant on Mount Sinai, the wandering in the wilderness, and then the entrance to Canaan. That may help you as you're reading through the first five books of the Bible instead of thinking, oh, Leviticus is all law and numbers is just this. No, no, no. It's the movement of a people. Here's some lessons that I've learned from those who have preached through this before. And I checked. I don't think Pastor D has in a way I could get access to or I'd have learned even more lessons. But here's some things I learned. Number one, why do we preach through a book like this? Why study an Old Testament book like Exodus? in 2020 when there's so much going on that really needs a New Testament answer? Well, first, we need to know God more so that we might love and serve him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And every book of the Bible helps us to do that. Second, we need to better understand God's plan of redemption, which is not just a New Testament invention. Next, we need to understand God's mission and our mission better, and finally, we can draw lessons for living out our faith on a daily basis, even taking the text in context. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Here's some of the things we'll find in Exodus. Taking care of the unborn. Racism. Murder. How God can use weak, ordinary people the importance of singing praise together. The importance and the nature of true community. How to rely on God's presence every single day. We'll learn about delegation and the need to take counsel from others. Obeying God's word. We'll discover issues of idolatry and true worship in our own hearts. There's no shortage of dramatic events and Moments in the book of Exodus, it's a story that's been repeatedly captured by the public imagination. 
It's been a favorite of filmmakers. It's the story of deliverance from oppression. It's inspired liberation movements from the Pilgrims Fathers to the English revolutionaries to the civil rights movement. The cry of let my people go has thundered through the ages. But I want to tell you something. This book, its truth, is more dramatic than these moments and more revolutionary than these movements. Why? Because this book broadcasts the name of our God. This book pivots on the promises of the God who created the heavens and the earth. And this book proclaims that true freedom is found only in willing submission to God. Let's tug a little bit at that wiry, snaky thread that leads us back into Genesis. Look with me back at the first uh, few verses here, Exodus 1. There's a pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have some of those Verses on the screen. I'm going to give you a few things to notice if you're taking notes. Verses 1 through 6, I'd write down this. Notice the people. You could just write the people or actually I'm not going to tell you what to write. There's the note. Notice the people. You write as the Spirit leads. How about that? Look at the names that are mentioned here. The sons of Israel. We see uh, Jacob and each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, which I looked up and it's actually pronounced Zebulun, but there's no way y'all would let me get by with that. Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. We see the text continue. The descendants of Jacob were about 70 persons. I don't do this often. Just want to make sure you're still with me. Uh, 70 persons say 70 I was weak. Let's try one more time. I'm not looking for too much of a response, but a little better than that. Here we go. Say 70. There we go. Awesome. That's how many came with him. And then Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. The book of Exodus, though, in the Hebrew, I want to tell you something funny here. So some of you Bible scholar nerds in the room will love this. You'll think I'm going to blow past it. I'm not. The actual first book, word of the book of, Hebrew, uh, the book of Exodus is and. Now, I wasn't raised in a grammatically proficient home growing up, but I did know you weren't supposed to start sentences with and. How about books with and? It's, uh, it's a literary device meant to imply that there's more to the story than what's in front of you. This is not a literary device. It's that continuation I told you that Exodus lives in context with that complete revelation. It alerts us to the fact that the story is bigger. All of the English translations omit that because it doesn't need to be there, but isn't it special that it is there in the original Hebrew? The end of the previous book, Genesis, has already hinted at a sequel. I know that's just what you were hoping for is to come to church on Sunday morning and hear about another sequel, but Genesis hints at this. In Genesis 46 and Genesis 50, we see these things. God speaking to Abraham, or rather to, sorry, speaking to Israel, says to him, I am the God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. We're going to come back to this verse later. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, it ties back further than this, but when we're noticing the people, here's the family that God is going to uproot and move again, this nomadic family, to Egypt. In Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die. 
But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Notice the people. I don't want you to forget something. When you are reading scripture, when you are studying the word of God, these are actual people to whom these events occurred. I don't want you to forget when you're going through your daily routine and you're interacting with folks at the fast food place where you're picking up your cup of coffee or whatever your routine is. These are people with stories and lives and they deserve dignity and respect regardless of their office, station, economic status, or ethnicity. Notice people. I've said this before, you've heard me say it, I don't want to abuse it or beat a dead horse, but listen, there are only two things we get to touch in this life that last forever. One of them is the Word of God. The other is people. Notice the people. This next note I would give you as we're kind of making a survey across this text is notice the plenty in verse 7. Notice the plenty. Look at verse 7 with me. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, in this age of the fact that prosperity gospel sells, by the way, anytime you put a different word in front of the gospel, newsflash, spoiler alert, it's another gospel. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, that's what sells this day and age. Teach me how to get rich quick and not have any problems. Problem is I can't find that in the word of God. But here we see this people having been described as fruitful and increasing greatly and multiplied and exceedingly strong. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Isn't it interesting that God here is describing the fruitfulness and the plentiness in the point of the numbers of people? The average size of the American home back in the early 20s, 1920s, was, you ready? Take a deep breath, parents. 11, 11. The average size of the American home now is two and a half. I don't often quote Andy Griffith, but uh, one of my favorite Andy Griffith episodes is Opie's talking to his dad and says something about, Dad, there's some kids in our, um, in our community that can't eat and that are poor and something. And the dad says, well, actually, it's uh, for every one and a half boys, such and such can't happen. And he said, wow, that's so sad. He said, I know it's tough, isn't it, that they can't eat. He said, no, how do you be half a boy? <laughs> and the dad said, no, son, that's a ratio. And Opie goes, poor Horatio. <laughs> the average size home has shrunk dramatically while our consumption of all things entertainment has increased and skyrocketed. So is our debt load. It's interesting, these things that we track. They're not all corollary, but it's still interesting to see how society has shifted. These people were blessed because they believed children were a heritage from the Lord. They were blessed because they saw their greatest posterity to pass on was to fulfill what God had called them to do early on in Scripture. I'll come to that in a moment. 400 years before this, though, this was threatened. This promise was threatened. It looked like famine was going to wipe out the family of Abraham, but in God's providence, he arranged things. You know the story. Let me tell it quickly. So that Joseph, one of Abraham's great-grandsons, became prime minister of Egypt. Joseph gathered grain during the years of good harvest so that Egypt could survive the years of famine. And Joseph extended this relief to his father's family. 
Quick note, one of my favorite verses, Genesis 45, 7 through 8. Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me, God sent me before you a remnant to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it, is, it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is a separate sermon, but come on. They threw him in the pit. They left him for death and felt convicted. So did they make it right? No, we're convicted. We shouldn't leave him for dead. Let's sell him as a slave. I don't know how they get there, but that was their moral compass in the day. They sell him into slavery, forget about it, go to their dad and destroy him and crush him, saying that his son has died, and they're okay with this. Now, we see them haunted by it later, but not haunted enough to ever repent and make it right until they were confronted face-to-face with him. And Joseph says, the, the audacity of him to say, you didn't do that, you didn't send me here, God did. And he's made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Israel. Ah, let me hasten on for time's sake. They moved to live in Egypt and enjoy Egypt's provision. The future of the promise was secured. For now, at least, God's people had been blessed because they had blessed the nations through Joseph and the people of God had been preserved. It's worth noting that verse 7 from Exodus here, the action verbs there match the action verbs in creation it's pretty remarkable to see this. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Say multiply. Multiply. Just make sure you're with me. You've been seated a long time. Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then there's the, of course, we see the fall and the flood, and then God brings the commandment back to bear in Genesis 9, 7, says it again. God blessed the people of Israel to demonstrate that they were fulfilling his command to be fruitful and multiply. They were blessed by God because they were fruitful. Look around, Grace Covenant. Notice the people that God has brought here. Notice the plenty that we have here. Multiple generations represented in our congregation. Look around and say, God is good because he is. We have babies and we have seasoned saints who have dug wells that some of us younger folk are getting to drink from on a regular basis, and we are blessed. Our biggest asset at Grace Covenant Church is not the fact that we own property on the corner of South and East Boulevard when construction is booming all around us. Nope. Our biggest asset is not the fact that we stand uh, in the, the black, as it were, with the building and assets on the property. Nope. Our biggest asset is not our balance in our bank account. Nope. Our biggest asset, look around, is in the pews seated right around here. Our biggest kingdom asset that will make a difference for generations are the people and the plenty, the fruitfulness of our labors that God has brought. Uh, let's make two more observations and then application, and then we'll sing unto the Lord. Notice the perceived power. Next point. Notice the perceived power. Now, I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because we only read through verse 8, but I am going to touch verse 9 here. Verse 7, if you'll recall in verse 7, it said they were fruitful, um, they had, were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and then verse 9, Pharaoh was wigging out, right? 
Pharaoh's looking around, seeing all these folks. He didn't know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. The total number of those who made that original journey 400 years previously was just, do you remember the number I said? 70. And now, these 70 people have become a great nation in just a handful of generations. And they've multiplied greatly so that they fill the land. Pharaoh was threatened by this even though the people weren't threatening. Are there things in your life that you are threatened by because you have a bad perception of what's going on? Oh, there's so many applications to this. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I was thinking about this. Pharaoh is totally just, he's, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. He's just wigging out over this. He's, 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 He's messed up in the head. He's thinking, they're going to overtake everything. There was never a threat or a hint that that was going to happen. Be careful of the authority and the power that you give fear in your life. Some fear is good. Be careful of the things that you perceive as threats that may not be threats at all. Finally, there was something for the people of Israel to be afraid of. Notice the peril. Now, we know what's coming. We know what's coming. But if we were just living with the text as it were revealed to us, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Jacob, or Joseph, rather. <laughs> this stems all the way back. This snake, <laughs> pun intended, goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Our reflection verse could easily be seen as a thematic verse for the book of Exodus. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. You see, up until this point, the scope of God's plan and Satan's actions had been with individuals. They had been with Jacob and Esau and Cain and Abel, but no longer is that happening. Now the scale is ramping up. We're looking at it being enlarged to include two peoples, two nations, the covenant people of Israel in opposition to the people of Egypt who are outside the covenant. As the book of Exodus unfolds, we're going to see the clash reaching phenomenal proportions. We, we see a mere glimpse of the extent of this seed conflict, which is the theological term here. It's universal nature. So when we look at this passage, I don't want you to just blow through this passage. I'm prone to do that in my daily Bible reading. Your pastor's confessing his faults before you. You see a list of names, you go like, okay, yes, da 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 Get me to the good stuff, right? Let me see some, I mean, guys, it's like watching a war movie. You're like, get me to the shooting or whatever it is. Get me to the battle. Get me to the, if you're watching NASCAR, to the wreck. I don't know. Is that why you watch NASCAR? I'm sure. But uh, get me to the action. I want to see the action, but there's so much here. I want to challenge you to slow down. Notice the people. Notice the plenty. Notice the power. Notice the peril. In these first eight verses that snake all the way back through Genesis. Let me give you some essential truths that underpin this for you. If you had started reading in Genesis and were making your way to Exodus and stopped where we stopped this morning, your mind would go back to Genesis 46, which I read for you earlier. And here's what you'd hear. Everything was all right. You say, Pastor Chad, I don't know about that. Genesis 46.3, remember the Lord said, I am God, the God of your father. 
Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, when God tells you not to be afraid, you can write a check on that and cash it. Fear not, Pastor Vincent Riley reminded us that there are some 365 expressions of fear not in the Bible. One for every day. Everything was going to be all right. Here's another principle for you from Genesis 15, 13. It shows us everything was planned. Look at the text. Then the Lord God said to Abram, know for certain, to Abram we're speaking now. Chapter 15 of Genesis. You see the snake going all the way back, just all the way winding through there. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. Can you believe this? Spoiler alert. What? This was planned? I got to tell you, if I'm out there making brick and they've taken some stuff away and somebody says, uh, fear not, this was planned, I'd be like, you need to hush that up now. I'm not having the best of day for that. This was planned. Last principle here, Genesis 15, 14. I'll put all, all three of these on for you, but I want you to see this text too. The third principle is this, all shall be well. The next verse of that says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Here are those three truths again. Look at them. Everything was all right. Everything was planned and all shall be well. But how is this so? I'm fairly certain that once Pharaoh began the genocidal persecution of these people, nobody was running around saying that. They would say nothing seems all right, everything seems out of control, and everything is awful all the time. I'm not describing your Facebook feed. Or maybe I am. It should not be forgotten that God is at work behind the scenes. That's why these truths are true. It should not be forgotten that God is still in control, church, and on the throne, acting in his providence to manage history unto his own ends. History is being played out according to his desire, his will, and his plan. Even when we're in the thick of a moment where everything does not look okay, Things look out of control, and everything's awful. History belongs to him. Remember that during this difficult, challenging, and polarizing season, don't get all hot and bothered about temporary things, brother or sister in Christ. Don't get all hot and bothered about who's doing this thing and who's not doing this thing. God help us. Don't get all hot and bothered. Let the peace of Christ rule and reign in your life. We know better. Get worked up about people who are near you but far from Jesus. Get worked up about that. Get worked up about the living in the Word so the Word can live in you. Get worked up about your own relationship with Jesus so that your salvation works itself out of every nook and cranny in your life. And people watch you live this thing called life and ask you for the reason for the hope that you have. And with gentleness and respect, because you've surrendered to the Lordship of God, you're able to share the good news of a living relationship with the living God of this Bible. God is at work, and he's working all things for his glory, even when we don't understand. 
He's working all things for his glory. One of the notes from our essential doctrines that we cover in the Gospel Project, uh, speaking to Isaiah 55, says, His thoughts and ways are higher than ours. He has a larger perspective and purposes everything that happens for our ultimate good and for his glory. God's transcendence is in many ways what makes God God. God is different than us. He's above us. He's superior to us. So let us respond to him with awe and wonder as the only one worthy of all honor, praise, and glory forever. Let the church say amen. Don't try to bring God down to your level and lay your emotions and your failings and your sense of justice and your lack of understanding and wisdom on him and say, now you fix this. No, no, no. He sits on the throne, bow the knee. Bow the knee in worship. Jonathan Edwards would write in his great dissertation, actually the title of it, Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. That's the title, not the subtitle. <laughs> and he writes it this way. He says, the great end of God's, um, the, the great end of God's, there it is, works, which are so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. Of God. The chief end of God is to glorify himself in all that he does. But this is especially true in Exodus. Don't forget when we're reading through Exodus that everything was all right. All this was planned and all would be well. Don't forget when you get up tomorrow morning, many of you may have the day off. Don't forget when you get faced with the onslaught of communications, text, whatever they be, that try to pull you in all different directions. Don't forget when you need to find the remote control and turn the news off that all was okay. God's in control. All shall be well. I wonder if you see the parallel this morning as I close. We think we're powerful, but we're wrong. <laughs> Man's sin didn't start in, the, gar didn't start in uh, the den of isolation or denigration. Man's sin in the garden of perfection. We may think we're powerful, but we are wrong. God, the creator of all things, he's always existed. He's holy, and he's calling us to himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. We may think we have plenty and abundance, but the Bible reveals to us, we say, I'm rich, we prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked without God. The Bible clearly teaches us that all people are sinners who deserve God's righteous and eternal wrath. Romans 3 pulls no punches and says we don't understand, we don't see God, we turn aside, we, we become worthless, we don't do good, our throat is an open grave, our tongues are used to deceive, the venom of asps is under our lips, our mouth is full of curses and bitterness, our feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined, and before we say, yeah, that sounds like D.C., or that sounds like Raleigh, no, no, he's talking about us. We stand in need of God's love. We stand in deserving of God's justice. We're headed for peril Everlasting perishing, the Bible describes it. In fact, we need a rescuer, Jesus Christ, better than Moses, who is 
truly God and truly man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him and rose from the grave in order to give people eternal life. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The fact that Jesus Christ was made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. The only way to be saved from the wrath to come and to be reconciled to God is to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. Jesus would say in Mark 1, the time has come, repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 20 tells us it's for the Jews and the Gentiles. All can be well. Everything for our rescue and redemption was planned before the foundation of the world. And in spite of the suffering and the impending arrival of a gift-wrapped handbasket for the world in the coming months, I'm sure, everything can be all right. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Can we stand together? The musicians are coming now to transition us to respond to the text in worship this morning. But here's my question to you. As we lift up our eyes under the hills from whence cometh our help, is everything all right with you? I, I know that you have issues and, and we have things to talk through and work through, but how you doing? Because if you're not doing life with your Bible open and a living relationship with God, I would venture to guess it's pretty tough. Miserable. Hopeless. Those are apt descriptions for life without God. You don't have to stay that way, though. The relationship you were made to have, you can have. And God planned it before the foundation of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we love you deeply. We see you at work in the earliest verses of Exodus. <laughs> but actually that unfolds and we see it in Genesis. Lord, we're here in September of 2020. No doubt looking at different aspects of our own lives and the news and the events around us and wondering, sometimes tempted to wonder at least, where are you working? How are you working? When will you do this or do that? I pray that we'd be encouraged this morning to know that you have a plan. You are on the throne and you are calling us to bow the knee and to bring others with us. Father, there's one here today without hope, without that living relationship with you. May they cry out to you. Maybe they'll pick up that Bible, open up to Psalm 51 and see David pour out his heart and confess his sin to you and ask you to make him new. Maybe they'd grab somebody on their row and say, pray with me. I want to have a living relationship with Christ. Maybe they'd come see me after service. However, it happens, Lord. We don't really care about the means. We just want to see them made new. We bless you. We love you. And now we worship you, singing the songs of Zion. And the church said, amen.